0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, is the UK dragging its heels when it comes to Ukrainian refugees? Plus, are commodity traders finally finding a moral compass? And finally, how come awful is making a comeback? First up, In this week's cover piece, Kate Andrews and Max Jeffrey report back from Calais, where they've been interviewing Ukrainian refugees hoping to make it to Britain. Kate joins me now, along with former MEP Patrick O'Flynn, to discuss the UK's handling of the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Kate, in the magazine this week, you write about your experience in Calais and the mounting pressure on the government to let in more Ukrainian refugees. You got back from Calais this morning. What what
2: was your experience there? So Max Jeffrey and our broadcast team and I drove out there on Monday evening. Um, we decided to go out there after Priti Patel told her French counterpart and also the House of Commons that the UK was not turning Ukrainian refugees around, that that was absolutely not happening, that they were indeed welcome. And this didn't seem to add up with the numbers that we're seeing. didn't seem to add up with the experiences of Ukrainian refugees that were starting to come out in the media. So we got in a car, we drove down to the Eurotunnel, we went across to Calais, and it took genuinely mere moments of officially arriving in calais getting out of the car and walking into our hotel to disprove the home secretary's claims there we found seven ukrainian refugees who had been turned away at paris they weren't allowed to get on the train because they didn't have visas they would come up to calais hoping they'd have better opportunity at the ports it wasn't happening one of the refugees did indeed have a brother here in theory he should be eligible for the scheme as should his wife and and child to come with him but they weren't getting into the uk And it was a very common story. And look, there are a lot of different stories. Every refugee story is different. But people who did meet the criteria were struggling to get in. And people who didn't meet the criteria but had a lot of good reasons for wanting to come to the UK were desperate for the government to change its policy. And why does it seem to be being so tricky for them to get get here? So the government does not want to open up visa uh, options in Calais. Um, And I think this extends to a a far wider dispute between France and the UK over immigration from Calais. And it's it's quite clear that for political reasons the government doesn't want to do it. That means, practically speaking, refugees need to be in Paris or at a centre in Brussels. Now there's going to be a pop-up centre about 75 miles from Calais. It means you have to get there, it means you have to get an appointment and you have to apply. So two things. Number one, a lot of Ukrainians are running out of disposable income. I was told by one young woman that the money that she was spend for one night in an average hotel in the city center of Calais could last her a week for all of her expenses in Ukraine. So they did come with cash, but it you know, if you've been traveling for weeks, you're you're running out of it. And then the second is frankly just Typical, normal home office incompetence. There aren't enough appointments. The officials that were promised to help Ukrainian refugees, we didn't see any in Calais, certainly. And uh, when we spoke to the, the woman who runs Care for Calais, one of the charities out there to help refugees, she said, you know, she is offering them free immigration advice. She's trying to help them. But many people who are applicable, they, they can't get appointments for weeks. Patrick you've written for The Spectator this week about
1: this issue and obviously there's a lot of pressure on the British government to let in more Ukrainian refugees but you say in your piece that the government appears too scared to defend itself on the issue of migration and you you also say that only a fool would have expected a cabinet minister to set out a reason case as to why the UK is not perhaps well placed to throw open its doors to a big number of Ukrainians. Can Mm. you set out the case now why we shouldn't be doing that? Uh,
3: Yes well um, incidentally well done Kate for a bit of old-fashioned gumshoe reporting and it doesn't Surprise me in the slightest that the Home Office, you know, unfit for purpose as it has been for decades, is messing up uh, the actual bureaucracy of it. But my case is absolutely, we're not, I would suggest, relevant to the initial emergency stage of the refugee crisis. I mean, we're not a bordering nation, we're, we're not part of the story of getting people from a war zone into a safe country right and so it's perfectly reasonable then that that we set in any case being more than a thousand miles away some requirements but in actual fact we are singularly in europe i would suggest ill-equipped to handle very large numbers of uh, refugees and asylum seekers from ukraine and i'll cite just just one thing you know last year we offered uh, a refuge to 15 to twenty thousand. Uh, Afghans last summer in the middle of the year 12,000 of those as of last month were still in hotels because 300 local authorities that had been enlisted to help source them uh, suitable housing uh, despite that effort there's such a scarcity that they haven't been able to find any and that's on top of 25,000 what I will call channel hoppers mainly young men who've tried to play the system to uh, gain uh, entry into Britain by crossing the channel, uh, knowing that they're, you know, about 1% risk of ever being deported, uh, despite having no documentation. So they're taking out resources, at least in terms of short term accommodation that could have been available to the Ukrainian uh, exodus, 95% of those being women and children. But you know, we've accepted these large numbers uh, across the channel, for several years now, three years in a row. Those numbers are already increasing this year on last year. We also have a million-plus British families on social housing waiting lists. We have three to 5,000 homeless forces veterans, up to 400 of whom are sleeping rough every night. We have the Ministry of Justice preparing reports for uh, ex-convicts being released on how to survive living on the streets. So we're in a fantasy land if we think... Being so far away from the actual war zone, and with our housing crisis, that 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 it's a kindness overall. Particularly when the the Zelensky uh, government has said the natural thing is to house people in the contiguous countries, many of whom have seen depopulation over the last decade because of the free movement from the A8 countries and, and others across to Western Europe, much cheaper much more available housing, much closer to uh, the happy day of being able to return, would be for Britain to support financially uh, refugees within those countries. I wonder what the benefit is. Who are we trying to help? And I suggest some of the liberal establishment are trying to salve their own consciences, uh, and they're seeking to privatise the benefit of salving their consciences, while socialising the losses and the costs. Uh, and so I think we're, we're like a great aunt who sends you down to the shops with 20p to buy a pint of milk, completely out of touch, completely uh, relegating the needs of the many groups who are already not able to find housing in our country.
1: Kate, okay, what do you make of that argument?
2: So... I would disagree that we don't have the space. Last year, two-thirds of the seasonal workers who came to work in the UK, roughly 20,000 people, were Ukrainian. So we seem to have space for the fruit pickers when we want them in our economy. I don't think it works to say that we don't have space for Ukrainian refugees. There is no country that is particularly well-equipped at the moment, I would argue, post-COVID with finances in absolute tatters to be able to comfortably, without, you know, any difficult decision, manage a huge wave of people. So the question is whether or not we have the willpower to do it and whether or not we're willing to have those tough conversations. And I mean, I would be the first to argue that, you know, what can we cut? What can we reprioritize to help the Ukrainian refugees who want to come to the UK? I'm not proposing higher taxes or more borrowing or spending. Maybe this is the moment that we need to look at some of our grandstanding projects. And you know the fact that we're more interested, it seems, in, in making sure that supermarkets don't offer two-for-one prices and nanny state initiatives than we are in helping these women and children come to the UK. I think there are areas where we can find this money. I personally think that would be a good use of taxpayer money to support these people. I've heard the comments from the Ukrainian ambassador about how at the moment it makes sense to keep as many Ukrainian refugees as possible near their home. I'm not arguing if people want to stay on the border in Poland and Hungary, Romania, that they should be coming here. I'm talking about the people who have actively decided they want to come here. And those are the people we were speaking to in Calais. And they will, for obvious reasons, as you say, Patrick, be in smaller numbers. But what are we going to do with those people? And, And the perspective, you know, as I was listening to them, is your entire world has been turned upside down. Every refugee I spoke to when I said, you know, where would you like to end up? Their first answer wasn't the UK or Germany or France. It was home. They want to go home. And we can only hope that they get there at some point. But for a lot of these refugees, they have calculated that almost regardless of what happens um, in terms of, you know, optimistically a ceasefire or some kind of negotiation, they still don't think they're going home. At least not for a very long time. And they've calculated that. As English speakers, as people who want to study, as people with careers that suit the UK, they'd like to be here. It seems that, compared to the rest of Europe, the UK is not doing anywhere near its part to accept those people.
1: And Patrick, it does seem the case that there is broad political support for this across, you know, from left with, and right. The of Commons, But, you know, if you look at all the newspapers and you've got all these different publications agreeing on this, I mean, surely that is quite significant...
3: Well, I agree with you that the, the uh, large elements of the commentariat within what's traditionally known as the Conservative press, including the Daily Mail uh, to some degree, uh, have swung behind this case. But I do think there's a huge proportion of the British electorate, uh, you know, who have perhaps have family members waiting for social housing, have seen this uh, completely unprecedented levels of immigration this century since the Blair government and, uh, you know, voted probably in large numbers for Brexit with migration control and border control being uh, a centrepiece and they don't find their views being uh, reflected. Now, I do see that the Ukrainian refugees are amongst the most deserving people it's possible uh, to envisage and so I do see a case, uh, you know, in the second phase once they're out of the immediate war zone zone for a discussion about uh, the British contribution, but I don't think we're in a position, as I set out earlier, with our particularly with our housing pressures, also with our our kind of expert caseworker uh, people being overwhelmed as well. I don't think we're in a position to take the Channel hoppers to make the offer we've made unlimited to Hong Kong. BNO passport holders, and we've had a hundred thousand visas this year, perhaps another half million to come. No housing allocation planning by any minister. I don't think we're, we're in position to do that. Plus the Afghan influx, plus this influx. I think you know we, we're cashing checks where there, there's there's not the resources in the account to properly redeem. And I think it's a sort of, as I say, it's it's a conscience salving exercise. We feel disempowered. We want to help. I'm just saying a more practical way of helping would be to fund generously the refugees who have gone to, to neighbouring countries, have a second phase conversation about, well, what does, uh, as Kate was saying, if it's several years we're talking about here, what does that look like? What should Britain? do but then also have a much tougher conversation that no one in the house of commons seems to be having about our overall ability to control our borders about why didn't for instance boris johnson before he made the hong kong offer have a ring round of australia new zealand canada and other countries and say can we come together and do something jointly just complete unilateral
4: uh, Well, the uk you... The, the
2: UK has historic ties to that decision, I think, as well as, as as making the right ethical decision. Can I just do a very quick defense of Brexiteers here as well? I, I don't think it is fair to lump Brexiteers in, generally speaking, as the people who wouldn't want the Ukrainian refugees coming to the UK. Because if you look at the public polling numbers, it's well over 60% in the UK that are saying they'd like... These refugees to come. That definitely means they're Brexiteers in that, given the, Mm. you know, famous 5248 breakdown, because Brexit was in many, for many people in many ways about border control, but it wasn't about limiting numbers. It was about deciding when and under what circumstances we want migrants coming to the country. And you know, there's a real debate about that. You have people on the libertarian side of Brexit who would love to open the borders more. You have people on the conservative side who would like to have fewer migrants. But in this case, we're not even talking about migrants. We're talking about refugees. And I just don't believe, actually, that your average Brexiteer looks at the Ukrainian people and sees them as, as a weight or a burden on our society. No, but hang
3: on a minute. Okay? Aren't you also separately advocating uh, that the UK labour market is is thrown open to uh, asylum seekers in any event, by, by pointing out the number, for instance, of job vacancies we have in the economy. So I think you are, are envisaging, you are envisaging, aren't you, uh, a transformative process happening pretty quickly to turn an asylum seeker into an economic
2: well, well, we can only hope. I mean, I, I think it's outrageous that in the UK, refugees can't work from day one while they're waiting for their official status to come in, because that means the taxpayer ideally wouldn't be paying for them. They would be able to work and, and be an ind- independent person. But I mean, that
3: would create a massive pull factor uh, for, as I uh, use the term probably controversially, channel hopping uh, among, among, among young men. Must- and that's always been the reason that that uh, demarcation has been down there. You can't uh, claim a, a job and start working in the UK until you get your refugee status.
2: I must say, I'm I'm not particularly worried about. I mean, as, as somebody who's generally speaking more open to to immigration, the, the, these aren't concerns I usually have but particularly right now uh, with over a million job vacancies and the terrible inflation that this country is suffering in part because of those labour shortages. I just don't see it being a problem right now that we would have more workers in this country, people who really want to be here as well.
3: Well Boris Johnson in his party conference speech and a few months ago but my a lot has changed I acknowledge made the specific case and he set it out through the election as well. He's not just going to pull the more immigration lever to address labour shortages. He wants to put pressure on UK employers to train up Uh, UK staff he wants a little bit of upward pressure on wages after so many years of stagnation too so there's an awful lot of voters who will be thinking hang on this isn't what I signed up for he
2: did do that it was economically illiterate at the time not least because he was implying that shortages can lead to a more prosperous society it is one thing to talk about how UK employers need to invest in the native workforce and I completely agree with that but you know he was making those remarks just as inflation was starting to tick up we are now seeing the very real consequences of an economic policy designed on the idea that you have a shortage in the labour force, you have a shortage of supply, and that leads to a more prosperous society. I don't think your average listener right now feels more prosperous. I think they're seeing their energy bills go up, they're seeing the cost of food, the cost of living go up. They're actually probably in a lot of pain because this was never a good idea to begin with.
3: Yeah, but I don't think you'll be helping uh, the working class uh, person very much if you Bring in a huge influx uh, of extra labour. That's only going to bid the the market clearing rates of wages down in those occupations. And we saw the debate, didn't we, over over road hauliers and Keir Starmer amazingly came out against wage rises. For British truckers and called for tens of thousands to be brought in uh, under an emergency keep wages down idea from Europe and that didn't go down terribly well uh, in the Red Wall Seas.
2: I don't think it's helpful when the governor of the Bank of England or Kia or anybody advocates for a keeping wages lower policy. What we are seeing in the labour market right now um, when it comes to lorry drivers, when it comes to all sorts of positions is that the British public actually aren't filling them. There are a lot of jobs they Either don't want to do or for other circumstances aren't doing. And we are suffering the economic consequences of that. As I said at the start of this, we are more than happy to bring in Ukrainians when they're working in agriculture. We're just not happy to bring them in when they desperately, desperately need us. Um, And I, I don't believe for a moment that we can't actually cope with this or deal with this. We're making a political, but also a deeply moral choice right now. And it's very clear to me, looking at the rest of Europe, even looking at the rest of the world, that we are out of line, and that we are making the wrong one.
3: Well, I would say to Kate, uh, console yourself, you've already won. Because in fact, the government is going to bring in 10s of 1000s, probably hundreds of 1000s of Ukrainian uh, refugees, all of whom, virtually all of whom will be very deserving, but with absolutely no thought to the knock-on impact on our overstretched uh, social housing uh, capacity wow. and no thought as well well uh, to the knock-on impact on the labour market once refugee status is granted because labour is not just another inert factor of production, labour is people and people need homes and, and you know uh, neighbourhoods have lost social cohesion in our country in the last 20 years and I think it's a very irresponsible position for the establishment to take. I would say many people would be far more relaxed if the government had got a grip on the channel-hopping problem of the last three years, and it hasn't.
4: I'll
2: make a bet with you, Patrick, we'll come back in five years, Mm. and I suspect that the Ukrainian people we let in... in. I hope the hundreds of thousands, I suspect that they will have increased GDP in this country. They will have made a positive contribution and I suspect we will all be richer for having let them in.
3: Well, I certainly agree they'll have increased GDP. What happens to GDP per capita, of course, is much more important. I suspect
2: it'll be up and I suspect they will have made us all more prosperous. But I'll see you in five years. Well, I'll get you back together in five years to discuss
1: Patrick (laughs) and Kate. Thank you very much for joining.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Next up. Commodity traders have traditionally put profits over everything else, but in the wake of colossal sanctions on Russia, are they finally feeling the pressure to look more critically at the people they buy from? In this week's issue, Javier Blas, Bloomberg's commodities columnist and the co-author of The World for Sale, reveals what's going on in the world of commodity trading right now. He joins me now, along with Martin Weer, who also writes about how effective these sanctions might be in this week's issue. Javier, for listeners who might not know much about the world of commodity trading, could you start by outlining the role that the commodity traders have been playing recently in helping prop up Putin's regime?
4: Well, when we think about commodity trading, people usually think about the exchanges and Wall Street and computer trading. But what we are talking here is about the actual trading, the physical trading of commodities, buying a barrel of oil, a a ton of aluminium or a bushel of wheat. And the commodity traders are the companies and the individuals who actually buy and sell the physical commodities. And they have been very close to the Russia of Vladimir Putin, because Russia is a huge exporter of commodities. Putin needs a conduit to get those natural resources into the global market, and more importantly... He needs finance, and he has been needing finance in particular since we started putting sanctions on Russia in 2014 after the invasion of Crimea. And the commodity traders have been willing to put billions of dollars of their money into Russia and effectively helping the regime of Vladimir Putin.
1: And how have these recent sanctions affected how they approach trading
4: well, what we have seen is that some companies have stopped trading with Russia. The ones who have traded a bit with Russia later have apologized and say this was the wrong thing to do. But some of the commodity traders the privately owns continue buying and selling the commodities that Russia produces because they are not full worldwide sanctions. And some countries like China or India are happy to continue buying from Russia. And the traders are the intermediary between Russia and the willing buyers.
1: Martin, in your column this week, you write about the ban on Russian oil and and you talk about this idea of a mutually inflicted economic mayhem. Can you explain what you mean by that?
5: Yes, so mutually inflicted economic mayhem is my kind of substitute for the much better known phrase mutually assured destruction, which was the Cold War dictum that neither side would fire a, a nuclear missile because their destruction was assured by the military response. But uh, what I mean by mutually inflicted economic mayhem is that sanctions are a very, very uncertain weapon. They are a form of political signaling. Kofi Annan called it a necessary step between war and words. It's, it's, it, it's the middle way, as it were. But we have no idea what effects sanctions on Russia will have, really, either in altering Putin's behavior or in altering our own economies, in the sense that if they drive up prices, obviously enough at the petrol pump, or for gas for domestic heating, but food prices are the next thing. And I can talk a bit about that. But we're going to see, you know, the price of bread is going to double, and things like that. So there will be severe economic impacts of this conflict exacerbated by the sanctions regime and the Russian reaction to the sanctions regime and the interruptions of supply of all sorts of basic staple goods in the world.
1: Javier, you talk in your piece about this interesting idea that you've observed, which is the traders self-sanctioning. Can you explain what you mean by that?
4: What we have seen is that uh, the Western world has tried to keep most of the natural resources that Russia exports carve out from the sanctions that we have applied. So far, only the United States, the UK and Canada have included energy, oil, natural gas, into the sanctions on, on Russia. And in the UK, is a phase-out that is going to last all the way until the end of 2022. But what is happening is many traders and many companies are acting on their own and they are boycotting Russian exports of oil and other natural resources. We call that self sanctioning because it's beyond what governments are requiring. And the reasons are multiple. In some cases, because some companies are unsure of what's legal and what's not. And... Uh, has been a fast moving scenario. In other cases, they are forced because even if they want to import and continue buying from Russia, the ship owners are refusing to send tankers to the Russian ports, or the banks have re- refused to finance the, those, those transactions. And in some cases has been just because morality. They simply think that it's wrong to continue buying from Russia, even if it's perfectly legal.
5: And if the traders are listed, stock market listed companies, they're subject to sort of governance pressures and probably London stock exchange pressures to be seen to behave. It's the ones that are deeply hidden in the private, non-listed sector that will remain most active, including some of the hedge fund players who have famously profited from spikes in commodity prices in past moments of excitement.
1: Javier, you start your piece with a story about Shell. Can you explain what What happened there and and how that sort of has played into all of this?
4: Well, Shell uh, appears to have been a a bit short of crude oil and they're a regular buyer of, of Russian crude. So what happened was that over the last few days and in particular last week, the price of Russian oil, which is sold as a differential to the the price of Brent, which is the the, the oil that we we consume here in the United Kingdom that is produced in the North Sea. And that discount usually is no more than a couple of dollars a barrel. And um, last week, it really widened a lot. At one point uh, on Friday, it was more than $20 discount, and it really widened $23, $24, $25. And at the end, Shell bought a cargo of Russian oil at $28.5 a barrel discount, which was the largest ever and a number that I could not have thought ever that we will ever see. I mean, that was just a mind-blowingly large discount. There was a massive outcry from social media to politicians denouncing what Shell have done. The Foreign Affairs Minister of uh, Ukraine as Publicly to Shell, whether that Russian oil didn't smell like Ukrainian blood, And then Shell started to try to manage the situation, spin it. Initially, they said, "Well, we needed this crude oil, we know what it looks, but this is all legal. On Saturday, they, they kind of started with a, a non-apology apology, And on Monday, as the pressure continued on the company, it was something that you very rarely see from big oil they said not only that it was wrong, but also that they were very sorry and that they would stop buying Russian crude. So we went 180 degrees in the space of five days and it was massive pressure on the company in particular from society and the Ukrainian government that really forced the hand of, of Shell. But I think that at the end, they did the right thing. And I, I you know, in many ways, and I criticized the company initially on Friday when they did the acquisition. But I, I think that a company that is prepared to publicly say this was the wrong decision and we are sorry, is not something that you see uh, many often seen uh, from a company that is on the FTSE 100. They usually think that they are always right. And it, it's...
5: It's only a few days since Shell announced that it was pulling out of its cooperation agreements with Gazprom and the LNG project in Sakhalin and all of, and all of that, which was clearly a very top-level decision. And one suspects somewhere down in the you know in the engine room of Shell they just were doing this trading, and the top dogs only belatedly realised what had happened and then had to apologise for it.
4: I think that you are right, but it's also a demonstration that in this new environment if you are a trader and you are trying to do something that is going to be perceived by public opinion as wrong it could really go badly to to the companies to your point earlier if you are publicly listed you cannot really be seen as doing this but many of the commodity traders remain private uh, and that really gives them a lot more freedom i mean barely anyone knows their names. That gives them a lot of freedom to do almost as much as they want, whatever they want. And that's what they have done historically.
1: Martin, obviously the hope is that these sanctions will put enough pressure on Putin that he starts to uh, change his behaviour. But do you think there's a chance that if prices start to rise as much as you're saying and the price of bread goes up as much as you're saying, that actually it might be the West that starts to crumble first?
5: I wouldn't go that far. I I think that... We are just going to feel the pain of this in inflation em- empty sections of supermarket shelves it 's hard to imagine that that would create a sufficient wave of public opinion that Western governments cave in to the demands of putin what what i 'm saying is uh, that the the economic effects on the the, you know already suffering people of Russia being made a bit poorer and the rich of Russia being made temporarily a lot poorer and so on just may not have the effect on Putin and his clique that it's hoped they will have. I have some semi-academic background in this. I did once lecture on the subject of efficacy of sanctions in several interesting places and um what was apparent from a long study of the whole history of sanctions is that the targeted ones on the bad, corrupt leaders and their coteries tend to have a bit more useful effect than the wider ones on, on whole nations. So we wait to see whether sanctioning the oligarchs who actually hold Putin in power changes their mindset. It doesn't look as if any of this is going to change the mindset of Putin himself, who appears to have gone into another you know psychological zone of madness as far as we can tell but the people around him are greedy corrupt venal you know billionaires and maybe maybe this will influence them
1: thank you martin and Javier. And finally gus carter writes in the spectator this week about awful it's having a comeback he says largely thanks to macho men following internet advice about what to eat he joins Wilmore and myself now, along with Natasha Lawson, the Spectator's designer, who's also a keen organ fan and has even brought in one of her favourite products for us to try. Gus, in the magazine this week, you write about how Awful seems to be experiencing something of a renaissance, and you say that it's in large part because it's becoming a symbol of hyper masculinity. What seems to be driving this trend?
0: Well, I think I first kind of noticed it when I was scrolling on TikTok. Because I'm in my twenties and I have TikTok for some strange reason, and and I've kind of come across a couple of sort of nutritional influencers, and they're they're all men, and they seem to all be kind of big beefy bodybuilder types, and they all seem to be into kind of innards, into into organs and guts and that kind of thing, and I think it's, I think a lot of it's to do with like getting access to kind of vitamins and nutrients that you otherwise can't get, that they think that you can't get from from vegetables. I mean, they often sound like big toddlers, you know. They're saying, I don't want my greens, I want I want meat, you know, I want something kinda of tasty. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's kind of tied up with masculinity, as you say
1: and tell us about this man Liver King because he he's part of your piece and seems an intriguing character.
0: Yeah, so Liver King is like this kind of extraordinary guy who who lives out in the states. I I do kind of implore listeners to go and look him up because he's kind of he looks extraordinary like he almost looks like someone in a in a kind of six-pack suit. He's so big. Uh, and he walks around this ranch kind of swinging giant chains around and massive weights and just barking at the camera about about how good kind of eating raw liver is for you and then at the end of the video he kind of sits down with his his family who who kind of look as bemused as, as viewers are and makes them eat you know raw testicles and that kind of thing it's all totally totally mental <laughs> and uh, tash
6: you are a lover of offal uh, what is it that you enjoy about it
7: oh long long list of things the nutrition is number one you cannot beat liver for its nutritional density. I've just stopped supplementing entirely for my vitamin B's, my iron, my everything, basically. So nutrition is a huge part of it. Secondly, I really enjoy it. I make pate. I eat it raw. I, I eat other forms of offal as well. I just think it's a really wonderful thing to have. It's very easy to digest. It's It's... There's just so many lovely recipes, the the list goes on. Have you noticed a difference?
0: You said that you've stopped taking supplements. Do you feel, because I mean, one of the things that that Carnivore MD says, who's one of the other people that I mentioned in the piece, is that when people start eating raw liver, they get a kind of high out of it, which to me sounds like they might be kind of making themselves unwell, I don't know. But he's he's kind of convinced that you get a kind of massive buzz out of it.
7: I'm not sure I would treat it like a recreational drug. (laughs) Um, It's... Definitely a little goes a long way. And I think that's a good, I I see that as a great sort of nature's way of being quite intuitive because Mm. too much of it actually is, can be quite toxic. Too much vitamin A Mm. is actually a problematic thing to have uh, from a health perspective. So I don't get the hype, but I do get that sort of satiated feeling. I I don't have any munchies afterwards. I feel like the body knows it's got something really good Mm. in it. So I'm quite
1: happy. Tash, what do you make of this argument that Gus is making that it's a kind of, very masculine thing obviously you're a woman you're eating organs do you see it as a kind of masculine thing or is there a kind of feminine aspect to eating awful quite
7: honestly like I, I never really factored in the gender argument at all like I listen to a lot of podcasts for both directed for men that, that coincide with my health interests as well as women podcasts that talk a lot about the, the benefits of liver and quite honestly I, I, I don't want to get sound too opinionated but I don't know how people get their vit- sources of vitamin A without consuming liver, unless you're drinking a lot of milk and consuming a lot of dairy. I just don't know how you're getting it, and it's it's, it's the absolute critical building block for creating all your sex or youth associated hormones. So for women's menstrual cycles, for, for their reproductive organs, it's it's something that's really important. So I, I definitely see it as a a women source of nutrition. So yeah, it's universal to me.
0: See, look, I think I'm slightly guilty of like a, a different form of of like masculine brain thing where I'm just like life's too short to worry about things like vitamins and stuff it's like I'll just eat some food and it'll keep me going and
1: like how much guys is it a performative thing because the people you're talking about a lot of them are kind of going out trying to like slaughter animals you know, on oh, it's definitely. I think. But I think, I think there's it definitely seems about that as much as the actual yeah. I think. I think. There. I
0: think there's definitely a kind of a kind of performance to it. I mean. I mean. You said you didn't think there was much of a, a gendered element to it. I do think there's something shocking about looking at lungs or testicles or something like. And I think there's something kind of boyish about wanting to freak people out. It's like, oh, look at me. I'm eating this thing that makes you feel a bit disgusted. <laughs> and Gus, you say in the piece that that actually some of the discussion
6: around things like awful has actually been quite politicised, particularly in mm. perhaps American politics. And people on on the right of politics have kind of adopted the cause. Could you explain for our listeners a little bit more about that and how awful became not just a, a, a thing associated with ideas about masculinity, but ideas about politics as well? I think
0: it's even more than awful. I think it's our plates are starting to to become subjected to the culture wars where people on the right I mean I mentioned Jordan Peterson he's hes kind of famously a proponent of an all beef diet and when he says all beef I mean he actually only eats kind of steak that's it, I think he says like beef and salt and I think a lot of it's tied up with this idea that like that there are kind of forces out there that are trying to emasculate you and stuff like that, and and kind of you know proper a proper meal of like meat is what's gonna is what's gonna kind of give you the power to get through the day.
1: And Tash, do you think you could ever do a fully carnivore diet? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I
7: mean, I I, I don't want to. It's so easy to be judgmental on people that go sort of to extreme measures when it comes to their, their diet and health journeys. But at the same time, it's almost like they need need to figure it out their own way and Mm. as Tim Spector who you have you've interviewed on the um, Spectator TV a number of times he's quite inspiring in his view when he's talking about personalised health and nutrition and the idea that each one of us are very unique and individual our microbiome is is highly unique and therefore we've all got sort of different we all react very differently to certain foods we've all got we've born with different microbiomes and so it's kind of like let him figure it out because personally I don't think an all-meat diet is sustainable I think there's obviously pros and cons I don't see it lasting and Mm. I don't know if this is true but Jordan Peterson hasn't he had some kind of you know he's, he's had his own sort of mental health journeys as well Um, when you think about nutrition playing a huge part in your hormones and the way that you think and you feel i mean liver for example is absolutely packed with b vitamins and if you live through a stressful life like most of us do in the modern day you're going to be pounding your way through that from stress so it it does make me wonder how how long he's going to go in that journey but i don't want to judge because i've made plenty of mistakes of my own
0: i am like i think i am i'm I'm kind of in two minds about it. Part of me is quite judgmental about it because I just think it's, I think it's kind of a bit weird. And then I also do think it's sort of seductive. You're like, it's, it's such a simple answer to to kind of all of life's woes. You know, you'll just eat some liver and you'll be kind of big and manly and, and strong. But then it's also totally kind of absurd at the same time.
1: And Gus, in your piece, you, you sort of have this theory that there's, that we're kind of now in the third wave of awful. And you, and you talk about Fergus Henderson, who was obviously the pioneer of nose-to-tail eating in the 90s. Mm-hmm. How does this third wave differ from the kind of earlier well, think, British wave?
0: I think the difference really comes... I mean, on the face of it, they look sort of similar because it's about adopting more kind of traditional ways of of eating. Like part of it's about kind of respecting the whole animal and that does play into some of the kind of the American third wave kind of awful eaters as well. But I, I think the difference is, is that to me, there seems almost like a form of conspiratorialism when it comes to the Americans. I mean, if you look at Carnivore MD, this guy, Paul Saladino, who I write about in the piece, he he kind of walks around the supermarket pointing at different vegetables, at things like kale and saying like, you know, this stuff is garbage. Like it's bad for you. It has like, it has like chemicals in it that are like attacking you. Like stop eating salad, like stop eating vegetables. And I think, I think he's able to kind of use all of these kind of, Kind of fancy technical chemical terms that that are that are kind of alluring, but then at the same time, if you asked any nutritionist, they would just be like, "This guy is this guy is mad!" Like, of course you should be eating vegetables. And um, just to finish,
6: Tash, you have brought us in some liver pate to try, which we're going to do now. When we're tasting awful, I mean, what's the sort of thing we should be looking looking for?
7: Well, I can't speak on behalf of all things awful, but I I gravitate to kidneys. Beef hearts and all things liver from any animal. I think that there is the conversation about um, organic, grass-fed, you know, super healthy, like straight from the farm kind of thing. But there are some studies and some research that verify that liver is so comparatively clean compared to muscles, other sort of parts of the animal. All sorts of things like agricultural chemicals, uh, stress hormones. All those kind of things you don't basically want uh, tend to be absorbed through the muscle parts of the body. So liver is kind of as clean as it gets in terms of toxins. Tasha, other... that's
0: quite good, you know. I was I was slightly scared when you said you were bringing in some homemade <laughs> liver
7: pate. <laughs> and actually that was kind of delicious. So
1: oh, thank you. you. Yes, no, absolutely delicious. Tasha, finally, where do you get all these organs from? Do you just go to the butcher?
7: No. Uh, there's an online, uh, there's, a, there's like a, a local farm, it's called Farm to Fork. We order it online. And because it's quite small and localised, what they've got is what they've got. So if they bring in some mutton, we'll order some bits and pieces. And so it's quite a nice way of doing that. And yeah, it's just great to know that you've got something clean that's been ethically sourced and it's worth the money. And also organs are so cheap. You Mm. compare a fillet steak to a beef heart (coughs) and you can't compare it. The beef heart's so cheap, it's softer, it's succulent. My husband prepares it just the way he would with fillet steak you know pop open you know he opens a lovely bottle of cab sauv. boom you've got an amazing <laughs> meal totally melt in your mouth so see i can't um, do that
0: it scares me too much and i think i'm a <laughs> massive worse for that and maybe i should try some beef heart but um no i've stuck with liver thus far
6: well gus and tash thank you very much and and tash thank you very much for the, for the delicious uh, liver
1: <laughs> gus and natasha thank you very much and that's everything this week As ever, if you've enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to The Spectator to read everything we've discussed. And if you subscribe today, you'll get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I do hope you'll join us again next week.